the proposal for the second ETS is that it would operate separately for some time. Uh, this means uh, it has its own cap, um, its own reduction target, uh, its own allocation of allowances. Uh, but very importantly, there will be a separate carbon price in that system. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Milan Elkerbaut from SEPS, think tank in Brussels. Milan works as a research fellow in the Energy, Resources and Climate Change Unit. His research focuses on European climate policy and in particular the European Union Emissions Trading System, in short EU ETS. We are with him today to better understand the role that the European carbon market will play to support the EU in becoming carbon neutral by 2050. The EU ETS is and will remain the cornerstone of the European climate policy. In that regard, the European Commission has proposed in 2021 an extension of its scope and several amendments to its functioning in the Fit for 55 package, aiming at delivering the European Green Deal. Milan, thank you for being with us for this episode for Spot on Climate. Thank you very much, uh, Albert. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you. Um, so in your opinion, what are the most significant reforms planned for the EU ETS in the Fit for 55 package? What I would start with is actually that uh, a very significant thing about this reform of the ETS only, which is just yeah, one component of a much, like, a much larger package, this Fit for 55. It has almost 4,000 pages of, of text, so it's really an enormous endeavor by the European Commission, uh, but the ETS part only of it. Um, the changes are perhaps not very significant because the last time the ETS was revised uh, in the period 2015 to 2017, there were some very yeah, significant structural changes made already, and these are maintained now. Um, so what the proposal now does, uh, first and foremost, is to reflect the higher target that the European Council agreed to, which is the minus 55% um, compared uh, to 1990 by 2030. Um, this is an increase of the target and for the ETS. Uh, that means that emissions need to be reduced by 61%, so a little bit faster than the average. Um, and this will need to be reflected in the carbon market design. And for that reason, um, yeah, for me, the most significant change is uh, the update of the cap. It's a cap and trade system. So uh, every year there will be fewer allowances made available. Um, and if you yeah, look at this new target to reduce the cap every year, then uh, we will reach zero in the system already by 2040. Uh, so that means there's only about 18 years to decarbonize the ETS sectors, which includes some very difficult to decarbonize sectors uh, in energy intensive industries, such as steel, cement and chemicals production. So it's a very rapid decarbonization. Um, and yeah, every year, um, there will be, if this proposal would pass, there will be a bit over 80 million fewer allowances every year. And right now we're at about uh, a billion uh, and a half. But if you add that up, um, 
after a few years, you really have a, you know, a significant impact and much more scarcity. Uh, now, beyond the main ETS directive, there are a few other very um, influential, very significant proposals, but they are perhaps not to the existing ETS. So you already alluded to the extension of the ETS, uh, the, the wider scope to road transport and buildings. Uh, in legal terms, this is just one article in the ETS directive, but it would really have a, an enormous impact on uh, yeah, EU climate policy as a whole. And then there is uh, another horrible acronym, CBAM, the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which is a separate legal proposal, but it would replace one of um, the main elements of the current ETS, namely the free allocation of emission allowances to industry to mitigate the risk of carbon leakage. So it's a separate proposal, but yeah, uh, and a very dominant part of the Fit for 55 package. Thank you, Milan. I mean, I'm quite surprised also by the fact that the one of the topics that we talk the most in this Fit for 55, so the extension uh, of emission trading to road transport and building is only one article of the directive. So, yeah, the idea of this second emission trading system that cover the emissions associated with fuel combustions in the sectors of road transport and building has been yeah introduced in the Fit for 55 package. It's been questioned a lot by uh, NGOs, by member states, by some groups at the European Parliament. So how would this second ETS work? And under which conditions do you think the implementation of this new ETS can be successful? No, it's indeed a, a very interesting part of the proposal. And yeah, the fact that there is a separate article with a lot of subclasses for it also yeah, signals a bit that the Commission is yeah, trying still to keep it a little bit apart. It also makes it very easy to propose scrapping it because you just say, well, we suggest not to have Article 30 of the directive and then you don't have it. Uh, but what is the difference with uh, the existing ETS? Um, it's actually not an extension of the existing ETS. It's um, initially a separate system. That's why some people already talk about ETS 1, the existing one, and ETS 2 doesn't make it easier to understand, uh, but they are separate in the initial proposals. And the second ETS for road transport and buildings would be a more of an upstream uh, system. So unlike the regular already existing ETS uh, the, uh, for which the target are downstream installations. So you have the producers who actually use fossil fuels or have industrial processes that directly generate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. They are normally targeted in the existing ETS, but for the uh, the proposal for the ETS2, it's uh, the fuel distributors more. Um, so that means that um, at the point of combustion, which is in, in the cars and in uh, the heating system of buildings, people would not directly um, yeah, have to deal with the ETS. This is understandable because that will be uh, a very difficult thing to make regular people uh, 
have to buy and surrender allowances. So it's much simpler to do that at the distribution level. Um, what it would do uh, is yeah, de facto make carbon pricing and the ETS apply to yeah, virtually all energy emissions uh, in the EU. Um, and it's also yeah, worthwhile to think about the alternative, what would happen if you do not do that. So I already mentioned that uh, the uh, existing ETS uh, tends to have a higher uh, emissions reduction target than yeah, the average. So the proposal is for minus 61%. And today the, yeah, the existing ETS covers just under 40% of uh, total greenhouse gas emissions in the EU. It used to be closer to 50 when it started, but there has been rapid decarbonization in the, in the power sector. And if that would continue, you could easily end up uh, with um, the, the already existing ETS only covering about a third of the emissions soon. And whether you can then still call it a cornerstone, I mean, yes, it's still significant, but it also means that most climate policy for the EU would not be within the ETS. Um, so, yeah, the proposal for the second ETS is that it would operate separately for some time. Uh, this means uh, it has its own cap, um, its own reduction target, uh, its own allocation of allowances, uh, but very importantly, there will be a separate carbon price in that system. Um, and it might be understandable, especially in the current circumstances of very high energy prices, that you do not want to combine these systems from uh, day one, uh, because that would mean that uh, yeah, whatever happens in, say, yeah, the transport sector could then also affect uh, industrial competitiveness or the electricity prices. Um, and yeah, how that plays out is a bit unpredictable at first. Uh, but it also means that you don't have one of the main advantages of uh, what I think an ETS is, uh, and that is uh, the single cap. Um, so if you have um, all sectors under a common cap and the emissions reductions in one sector, say road transport, are a little bit slower than you anticipated, then it would automatically force uh, the other sectors uh, to do more. Uh, and then you still end up with the same emissions reduction, the same environmental outcome. And that is very yeah, strong um, policy tool to have in your toolbox. For now, the system yeah, is proposed to be separate, but there would then be gradual integration more towards 2030. Um, yeah, another sort of significant um, thing of the second EDS is that all the allowances uh, will be auctioned. Uh, that already happens in the existing ETS for the power sector, but not for energy intensive industries, because there is this yeah, so-called risk of carbon leakage. The fact that uh, if you put too much uh, costs uh, or carbon costs on the uh, energy intensive producers, then uh, they might move their production elsewhere or their investment, and the emissions would just increase in another part of the world. Um, but there is a bit of a, yeah, an equity dimension to this as well, uh, because it means um, that for the sectors um, that will be 
yeah, newly added. They are really the household sectors. A lot of people drive cars, uh, and virtually everyone needs heating uh, in their homes. Um, so, the, yeah, for households, they immediately face these additional carbon costs um, because the allowances would also be be auctioned. Uh, and for that reason, a very important dimension of this proposal is also the yeah, the social climate fund. And yeah, this is an idea both uh, by the commission to also collect some of the revenues of this new ETS, put them in a, into a fund, and use that to offset some of the costs uh, to households. Uh, and this can be a very important element to yeah make it more palatable for regular households. Um, yeah. We have already seen that uh, energy prices are very high today. Um, it's not because of carbon prices, but if you create a perception that you, know, you make it even worse, then that can affect um, sort of the support for climate policy in general. So it is important to look at this distributional impacts as well. Yeah, indeed, that was actually my... My other question, um, we can perceive with the price of the current ECS increasing uh, to almost uh, 180 euros uh, per allowance, a concern about the acceptability of these carbon prices. It has been also exacerbated by the energy crisis, the tension over energy security in Europe. How can the EU tackle this acceptability issue? No, the, the first thing which I, which is well recognized, but still is important for everyone to keep in mind is that uh, it is absolutely true that energy prices are genuinely extremely high for a lot of households at the moment. Uh, but this is not because of climate policy. It's not because of carbon pricing. It's really because uh, fossil fuels and especially natural gas are extremely expensive. So it's the energy costs themselves uh, that have risen. And the policy response should therefore also target these expensive fossil fuels by doing more with renewable energy, with energy efficiency, and electrification is one form of improving uh, energy efficiency, uh, doing more with uh, nuclear energy, and the ETS is actually yeah, helping with all these things. Uh, but then, yeah, there is the fact that yeah, also climate policies can have uh, yeah, distributional impacts. This is inevitable, uh, but with um, any form of carbon pricing, uh, you get revenues as well. And in the EU, these accrue to the member states. That's by design. Um, but it is then also very important that the member states uh, use these revenues to also address the social implications of climate policies. Uh, the carbon price has increased a lot in the last uh, five years, but that also means that the revenues are way more significant. If we uh, have a carbon price of 80 euros and uh, we auction yeah, close to seven, 800 uh, million allowances every year. It means yeah, there are tens of billions uh, of euros in revenues. And they just go into mostly uh, yeah, to the treasuries of the member states. 
Um, but it is always a political choice what you do with the revenues. Uh, you can just yeah, leave them in the, uh, in the national budgets, but it is absolutely possible to yeah, also return some of these revenues, especially to lower income households. And then you can even have a, yeah, a progressive fiscal impact of the climate policy. But you need to choose to do that as a member state. And maybe another element is that uh, when you think about compensation, uh, it, yeah, it's a classic lesson of e- uh, economics, but tends not to be done by politicians. But lump sum payments are way more preferable uh, than price intervention. So what we see now in a lot of uh, member states is that uh, they are intervening directly in the price by changing um, the VAT rates uh, for petrol, for example. Uh, but this actually has the opposite effect. You then are really supporting higher income uh, households who tend to use uh, yeah, more petrol or drive bigger cars. Whereas yeah, what you could do is just decide to give everyone, say, uh, 500 euros a year to deal with the higher costs. Thank you, Milan. We're actually working a bit on the auctioning revenues and what to do. Uh, with those actually revenues in different jurisdictions. Um, now, on very briefly, uh, a last question on the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the CBAM that you mentioned earlier. So the EU proposed to introduce a carbon border adjustment mechanism, putting a carbon price on certain imported products to reduce the risk of carbon leakage. And um, <laughs> yeah. Also, by by extension, it will also make the reduce the free allocation in the UETS. So, very briefly, how do you think, in general, uh, the introduction of the CBAM will affect the UETS functioning? Do you think it can also become an opportunity for the UETS to integrate with other carbon markets? Yeah, no, I think the the most important thing of this carbon border adjustment mechanism is what it would potentially replace, and that is free allocation to energy-intensive industries. And this free allocation has been fairly extensive. For some time, a lot of sectors even got more allowances than they needed to cover their emissions. And you can see how that yeah, has a bit of a distortive impact on the carbon price signal if you just give everything away for free. So the commission also rightly sees the CBAM as an alternative, which means that if you phase in the carbon border adjustment mechanism, it means that the allowances uh, given for free need to be phased out. This is controversial, especially in the current sort of geopolitical turmoil, because uh, industrial competitiveness will always be high on the agenda. Um, but the CBAM can be a quite efficient way to deal with this risk of carbon leakage. Although designing such a mechanism can be incredibly complicated. Um, you also have a very important uh, diplomatic dimension to it because you are essentially imposing a cost on um, yeah, the goods uh, traded uh, yeah, with your trade partners. And many of them will not like that. 
so whether this then actually leads to yeah, integration with other ETSs, I think that really would depend on uh, how well you justify such a measure and whether you really take the climate diplomacy seriously. Because if you yeah, do not sufficiently explain the measure, then uh, uh, trade partners will hardly be inclined to move more into your direction. They might just think it to be a completely illegitimate and protectionist measure and even try to retaliate uh, in other ways that does not really yeah, help more cooperation uh, on climate policy. Um, one thing, however, that is the case is that under the proposed uh, design, if another country already has a carbon price in place, then the EU needs to account for that. Say if yeah, Morocco would have a carbon price of 10 euros per ton, then the EU should subtract that uh, before applying any yeah, sort of charges under the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And you can see how this is really also a very strong incentive by any other country to yeah, start thinking about carbon pricing because you know that if you implement carbon pricing yourself, then you at least get the revenues and not the EU. But diplomatically, it's still, yeah, it's more of a, a stick rather than a carrot. Thank you, Milan. I mean, uh, we've seen that the changes uh, in the UETS opens up a lot of new challenges and fascinating discussions ahead of us. Um, now we're in a process where the Fit for 55 is being discussed. So it would be great to talk again soon once the, the package and the different uh, directives in the package have been um, approved by the Council and the Parliament. Thanks, Milan. It was a pleasure talking to you. Our pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Spot on Climate. Uh, you can check out SEP's latest publications below in the description and stay tuned. <laughs>